I'm Lauren Sterling, and this is Ordinary Grit, the podcast where I talk to ordinary people who have overcome and are doing amazing things because your story has power. All right, here we go. Second Tuesday of July, and this one is so rich. Melody is refreshingly transparent. It's going to make you want to know God's word to fight your battles. It's going to make you find grit to use your story, even the most painful parts. There's just so many powerful nuggets here. Okay, well, Melody, Mel, Grammy, Graham, Dog, all kinds of crazy names. You have a lot of names. Yes, I do. Okay, so <laughs> your, I call, I call Andrea my podcast boss. I don't know how bossy she really is, but I call her that. That's how I t- explain people who she is. So you are her mom, yes. if you're claiming her today. I'm claiming her every day. Okay, that's good. So she told us, told us that we needed to connect. And I really didn't know why I didn't actually even ask for any prep. So then we connected and I'm like, okay, this story is really, really powerful, really worth hearing. It's really meaty. And it really kind of all builds like you, you do a good job. You're already ready to be like, well, at the beginning and you just kind of start and you, you're a good storyteller. So you do a good job with that. But I'm really excited that you're here. And just really grateful that you're willing to, it, there's a lot of transparency and a lot of grit. I guess that's the point. There's a lot of grit in the story. So you start wherever you want. Tell me how you want to kind of start and then I'll interrupt you as needed. Okay. Well, I think I'd like to start with being a kid with a normal life. My parents were married. There were five kids and then they they were emotionally not real involved, but they loved us. They took care of us. We had a roof over our heads. We had food. We had a good life, except they weren't affectionate. Did you know that then? No. Yeah. You're really good at looking at things and taking it apart and dissecting it. And so we'll get to that, but you're really good at that. And I just wondered if as a kid, you, you were intuitive enough to know that that was just my life. And so I didn't, yeah, I don't know know any different. No. Okay. You know, I was a little bit afraid of my dad because the only time he really talked to me was if I was in trouble for something. He he just wasn't touchy-feely. But I did have a couple of good memories of my dad carrying me out to the car if I fell asleep someplace. Or he said I used to get in his pockets looking for chewing gum. So, you know, some little things that I hold on to. And anyway, my um, my mother had grown up in in a family where her father was a violent, abusive, alcoholic pedophile. And so, you know, she didn't have a good growing up experience. And my dad, my dad was a good mom. My mom was a good woman. I mean, my dad was a good man. My mom was a good woman. But my mom was, she looked to men to to fill that void. And so she eventually met a man that she left my dad for and my dad told me later that she'd had numerous affairs but she left my dad for this man and he was a violent abusive alcoholic how old were you i was eight okay i was eight so where do you fall in the five kids middle okay that's what i thought middle child so eventually then we moved back to our hometown she left him we moved back to our hometown and that was where my mom's brothers lived who were also pedophiles and so because of that my sisters and I were molested in fact my older sister which I'll talk more about she was raped for the first time when she was nine years old so you did you know when it was happening, you probably weren't talking about it a lot. I mean, this wasn't a time when this was talked about. But also, did you know it was happening to each other? No. You thought we, you were the only one? We talked about this when we were adults. Okay. We didn't talk about it as children. Yeah. After my sister died, my brothers went around to some family members confronting them about what my sister had left in her journals. Mm-hmm. So many years later. Many years later. Okay. Yes. So back to the childhood it was it was insecure. It was scary. We didn't know when my mom's boyfriend would go berserk and beat her up and 
tear up everything in the house and we would run for the police down the street or we would run across the street to use the neighbor's phone because one time I remember him just jerking the phone out of the wall. Just very, very violent. So it all reached ahead. My mom called her brother. He came and moved us from St. Louis to south of St. Louis. So then we were in the town where her brothers were and her dad and she met another man, and eventually, and not after too long, they moved in together. And he was not as outwardly violent as the other boyfriend had been, but he was abusive. Uh, he was abusive to my older sister. He was abusive to my younger brother and sister. My older brother and me, he he never abused. I think he was afraid of my older brother. Anyway, when I was 16, my mom left him and she had met someone else. And one night in the summertime, the previous boyfriend called. I answered the phone and he asked for my mom. And my mom said, I have to go now. Bud is here. And that was the new man she was seeing. And I don't know how much time passed, maybe 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes. And I was a block away at a park, and I heard what sounded like firecrackers, four firecrackers, and it was in the month of July, towards the end of July. And I walked back toward my house, and there was a police car parked on the side of my house, and there there were two, there was a boy that I knew from school he was a sheriff's son. He was there, and I guess the sheriff was there. I'm not sure, but they were around the outside of the house, and we said, "What? What's going on?" And he said, "You just need to. You just need to go on." And I said, "Well, I live here." And so then he said that there had been a shooting, and uh, my mom and the new man that she was seeing, Bud, had both been shot through the kitchen window, and my older sister was at the time she had a two-year-old and an eight and she was eight months pregnant and she was separated from her husband so they were staying with us my older brother was in the army I was I was living in the house and my younger brother and sister and so my younger brother and sister and my older sister ran into the kitchen and they they saw that that scene and you know I would just like to say that about violence that it's so unrealistic in movies and what we see on TV, how people experience violence and they, they stay in the same house. They just go about their normal lives. They just move lives. forward like it's nothing. Right. And, he, I mean, we had nightmares. We were terrified. I remember one time I went down in the basement to do laundry and I saw a hand trying to open a window in the basement and I I just freaked out. Well, it was my brother trying to fix something with the window. And one time I was working at a little dairy bar not too far from our house, and I heard a siren heading that direction. And I kept trying to call, and nobody answered the phone. And I was hysterical because I didn't know what had happened. And, and you just heard it. it. It was just in the town, but in your in your right. mind, that emergency right. connected with what happened at your right. house. And even my younger brother, who was... I'm thinking he was 10. No, he was 12 at the time. He would have horrible nightmares, and he would come get in bed with my 14-year-old sister and me because he was terrified. Yeah. And I remember watching the windows, and after that I would always be very afraid of windows. So it's just it, it, it breeds a lot of fear that you have to fight through mm -hmm. to come well, out on happened? the other side. What, because I'll talk about, I mean, grief and fear actually go really hand in hand. Um, I see that with my kids. But what happened in that scenario? The, the boyfriend he died pretty quickly, correct? He, he died. He was dead on arrival okay. at, the, at the hospital. And my mother had, had one bullet in her brain, and they said that there was no brain activity. And they kept her alive on a respirator for a week. And then she died on her own, which really that was that was better for us that we could still see her and touch her and talk to her. 
had a little bit of closure. A little bit. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, I mean, that's that I, I would say that explains a little bit of the fear, not just because obviously a major act of violence and a, and a string of violence, a, a, a history of yes. scary men, unfamiliar yes. men, but living in your home, but then also the grief, the loss. We don't have the history of violence in our story, but I still, my kids all in different ways, maybe not all, there's eight, but like several of them in different ways, grief accompanied fear. Some irrational. My littlest mm-hmm. guy all of a sudden is afraid of tornadoes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that isn't how his dad died. So so there is a, especially in kids, you know, a connect there too. But no, there was no one guiding you through That's it. that conversation either. Right. That's it. There's There was no one to help us process the grief, the the fear, not only of what had happened, but what does the future hold? Right. So I don't know how long you... Like, was it, it was a crime scene and then you obviously lost your mom. But at some point in there, you ended up back in the home and your older sister was raising you guys. Yes. Okay. Yes. Really, we, we were raising ourselves. You know, she, she had a two-year-old, as I said, and then she gave birth soon after that, the mm-hmm. next month, less than a month later. So we all took care of each other. We helped take care of her mm-hmm. children and, and that's how we got through. Okay. So then, I mean, that's late high school or mid mid to late high school for you. She was about 21. So then what does the next seasons look like? Well, after that, I, I had a boyfriend at the time in high school. And after high school, when I was 19, I got pregnant and we got married. And he also had a drinking problem. And I became very passive because at times when I did stand up to him it turned violent and I I didn't like to be hurt so I became very passive and to the I I say I became very passive but the truth is I didn't have an identity to begin with Mm. I, I didn't know who I was I really didn't have passions in life I didn't have strong opinions I really was just very neutral shut down Mm very shut down. And I think I had depression for for quite a few years. And so I got married and it was it was not pretty. It was when you were young and pregnant. Mhm. Yes. Didn't have great examples or a, a picture no. of any kind of marriage. It is impressive you you were with him a long time. So there is something about you that wasn't quite like your mom in moving. Uh, you know, dating a lot. You, it was the same guy, but it may be some of that just um, neutral passivity. Yeah, I've been told I'm a very loyal person, but also I yeah, I stayed with him because I never wanted my kids to experience divorce, and I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was doing the Christian thing by staying with him. I found out that he had been unfaithful, and we went to a Christian counselor who pretty much told me that I needed to buck up and mm. and forgive him but he he never changed he never changed so let's talk about the faith piece because you started talking through that where what did that look like growing up at what point did it become something that mattered to you even with bad guidance from a counselor it mattered to you that you were attempting to do what god wanted how did that happen my only experience with church was my grandparents were Christians, my dad's parents, and so we would go there for Easter and we would go to church with them. Then as I got a little older, when we were living with uh, the first boyfriend after my parents divorced, I had a good friend who was Catholic, and I loved to go to her church because we got to light candles (laughs) at her church. After that, once we moved back to our hometown, and my mom got with the second boyfriend, the one who ultimately shot her, he would make us go to church somewhere on Sunday. Nobody took us to church, so because I had to go to church, I went with my girlfriend. Her family went to church every Sunday, and they would pick me up, take me to church with them. So he required it, but just was like, go fig- go find one. Right. It was like, it was like, 
you know, a way to get rid of us mm. all, I think, on okay. Sunday morning to make us go to church somewhere. So, but when I was, even before that, when I was really young, I had found a small, real small little New Testament. I remember I had a red cover and I was, I was probably only about six, maybe seven. And I heard my sister one night, my older sister, when she thought I was asleep, I heard her praying out loud and it really struck something in me. That was, I think the first time ever that I had really thought about God and so I would just hold that little New Testament. I guess I could read at that point, but I remember holding it in bed mm-hmm. when at night. I just held it. It's like little seeds, mm-hmm. like you didn't even know why you believed that those words or that book would have mattered. And she had no idea what kind of seeds she was planting, mm-hmm. it, but you were hearing something. It, it's I've, I've said that God kept me on a really short little leash. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that was what God was kind of laying these little, like planting these little seeds and, and, and kind of messing in the soil before he was growing anything. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I love the way that he has of just so gently drawing us to him. And that's, that's what I believe I felt as a little kid. I felt God drawing me to him. Even in the midst of really hard. Yes. It makes me very emotional to, to think back and just remember that. Mm -hmm. Then later, my dad's parents, my dad would come get us from time to time, take us to my grandparents' house. And I remember one time in the summer, they were having a revival at their church. And I wanted desperately, I mean, the Holy Spirit was moving on me so strongly. And I was probably about 11 or 12 years old that I desperately wanted to go to the altar, but I was too shy, too backward, too awkward, and I just couldn't go in front of those people. I just couldn't do it. And so I I stood at the pew, and I asked Jesus in my heart, and I really really meant it, and I, I felt the difference until I went back home to my home environment. And... The main thing I want to say, Lauren, is about my childhood, there was so much shame, so much shame, shame about my mom living with men and, you know, what do the kids in the neighborhood think? What are the, what do my friends think? Just so much shame all the time, shame of being sexually molested, shame of my parents being divorced, just shame upon shame upon shame. Mm. Okay. Well, and I, I would assume we're going to, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but yeah, that's a good just understanding of what that, what that felt like and really how poorly we communicate. I mean, you had even family that, that allowed for the blame of what some of the things that happened to you to be on you. And that's a really common thing in sexual yeah, abuse. Yeah. So sometimes it's not even said in your case, it was said that why did you allow this or it was your mm-hmm. fault, but it is a really common thing. So I'm hoping that some of this conversation is freeing for other people with, with that part of, with that similar part of the story. Right. Okay. So we are raised, raising each other. We're living in that house. You let, I mean, let's maybe, well, you know, we got, we're past that. You got married. He was messing around. You went to counseling. They tell you it's your duty or your Christian duty. So at some point you, you felt released. I mean, that, that changed. So how did that play out? Well, this is how that played out. I, I was having issues and going to the doctor and I found out that I had STDs and I had been faithful. So I, I, I was so, you know, how, how sometimes your mind won't absorb what you know is truth, because if you absorb it, you have to make a decision that you're not ready to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you admit it or say it out loud, you have action has to follow. Right. Yeah. So I, I knew that because I knew he had had that affair before and I, but I, I was telling myself, well, the diseases that I now had could have been from that. So finally I kept having issues and issues and they were, they were getting worse and worse. 
and to where my health was really in danger. And so finally, I just called the county health department and said, I need some answers. I need some black and white answers. I need somebody answers. to shoot straight with me. Yes. What is the reality of the details here? Can't Could this be old? Right. And, and, and they told me the truth. No, it cannot. And so I knew that he had been being unfaithful again. So I told him I wanted a divorce at that point. So we divorced and I ended up with a hysterectomy. Hmm. At that point, you had two kids? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes. How old? 10, 11, and 7. Okay. And so it was hard because then he he fought me. He was very angry with me, blamed me for everything, got violent. I had restraining orders. And then eventually... His second marriage failed, and so then he directed his anger towards her and started, he left me alone. You got kind of some reprieve, yeah. Right. Okay. Right. So soon after we got divorced, we got divorced in the month of July, and then in August, I started taking full-time classes at Longview in the evenings, on weekends, after work, and I was, I wanted to get a degree in occupational therapy, and so I was taking the prerequisite courses to be able to do that. So what made you do that? Like what made you, you, you had previously really not had strong opinions, like you said, now you've been through, I mean, some significant things. You're, I mean, I don't know, in your thirties. I was 32. Okay. So early thirties and you're going to go back to school. I mean, there's some drive and, and grit there. Well, when I was in high school, my high school counselor called me in the office. I don't know why to discuss something. I don't remember. And he said, you know, your college material. And I thought, well, you know, I knew I did well in school, but now I never thought about going to college. Mm. But my older sister went to nursing school, and that's really what gave me the idea, well, if she can go to college, I can go to college. And once we got divorced, I knew I didn't want to be dependent upon child support. Yeah. How crazy that one, like, short statement or one short conversation with a school counselor that, I mean, I only God's words create and bring bring real life right right. only god's words have have that kind of power but our words do hold a really important they can bring life or death yes and not not the same as the lord so i don't want to say that but uh, what we say matters and gosh how crazy that that little statement and again you have an insanely good memory and you you have a really clear picture of some things in the past that I, i just don't always have i mean i have Sometimes I can see things real clearly in the past, and sometimes I cannot remember last week. So, oh, I, I, mean, I struggle with that too. Yeah, but you really have some real vivid memories, and that is really—I don't know—I think it should challenge a lot of us to be really cognizant of what we say and whether or not you know we're speaking life into people because that's a big deal. That as a you know kind of a small town kid, a, a, I don't mean to make you sound really old, but a long time ago when they weren't maybe encouraging everyone to go to college, when that wasn't right. as popular as it is now, those right. words, I don't know, kind of gave you a, a, some confidence. Nobody had ever spoken that to me before. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't. Or even seen you. Even, to, to, even nobody had seen me, period. Hmm. I always felt invisible. Well, and you were in the middle of a really complicated situation. Right. So, yeah, that's a really big deal. He probably had no idea. Well, let me tell you, I ran into he and his wife years later when I was working as an occupational therapist. Mm. And I ran into his wife, and she went home to get him, to bring him. They had moved from our hometown way up north and I where I was working. And they were so happy and so delighted mm. that I made it. That's crazy. Yeah. That you made it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a whole different thing. That's a different conversation, but that's really good. So you go back to school. You're, I mean, you have a plan. You you knew what you were going to go back and you got your under, you know, had to take your undergrad and had kids to, to raise. And so, okay. That took you what, a couple years? Longview. I went to Longview and worked full time for two years. And then 
the way it was set up, I, I had to quit my job. I worked at the high school in Lee Summit. I had to quit my job so that I could take 18 credit hours one semester. And then in the summertime, I had to take two classes. Before I even knew if I was accepted into OT school, I had to quit my job and so that I could take, because I couldn't, there was no way to do it. Well, it's a big leap of faith. Uh, yes. Yeah. And so I lived on child support, tax refund, and pulled out my non-teacher retirement money. And that's what we lived on. Mm-hmm. I budgeted it out monthly. And mm-hmm. we lived on that until I got out of school. At the end, I ran out of money and was living on credit cards mm-hmm. <laughs> until I started my job yeah. because the OT degree was a four-year degree, but then I had to do nine months of internships before I could actually yeah. get the job. So during so then I did get accepted into OT school, and in my second semester, even before I started, I said, okay, if I can keep my car running, if I can keep keep my son well, because that's a piece we haven't talked about yet. It was all the health issues that my son had. And if there's no tragedy in the family, I can do this. And the second semester, about the time, well, my sister, my sister took her own life. And that was really, really difficult because I didn't have the wherewithal to help my kids grieve. Her 16-year-old daughter came to live with me. I didn't have the wherewithal to help her grieve. I would find myself driving to KU Med Center, just sobbing all the way, take an exam or do whatever I had to do and sob all the way back home. And I I couldn't stop until... Because this is, I mean, the older sister, this mm-hmm. is, I mean... The adult in the home when you when you lost your mom, this is be, by this point what you're one of your best friends. You she, said she was my best friend. Yes. Someone you spoke to. I mean, did she live close? She lived in the apartment above us. Okay, yeah, she and she and her daughter, and um, it it was devastating to us. And I read a book. I read a book that helped me to see that I had to let go of her that she was an adult, I was an adult, that it was not my job to have gotten her through life because I'd always been an emotional support for her. And and really both, I'm sure, like because you grew up in such a traumatic right. situation, you were all probably in some ways kind of stilts and propping each other up. Yes. You were you were each other's healthy or not. I mean, there's probably a lot of codependent things that ended up coming from a lot of that, but you're propping each other up. You're trying to, Mm -hmm. to make it. Yeah, that was it. We were surviving and we were helping each other survive. And she was a psychiatric nurse. She was working on a sexual trauma unit with ritualistically abused women. And I think her own, sexual abuse was becoming more than she can bear because there is something you you're not old enough to know this yet but there is something about as you get older your stuffer wears out and you just can't stuff Hmm. the stuff you used to stuff Hmm. so she was getting help and after she took her own life I went and met with her her counselor and she told me that she had had a couple of different suicide plans and so anyway she was in the hospital trying to get help for her depression and she took her own life in the hospital Mm. so that was a really hard time and there were mornings when lots of mornings I before I woke up before my eyes opened and I was awake I knew I didn't want to wake up and I found myself driving down the highway thinking I could just pull over in front of that semi and nobody would know that it wasn't an accident. I wanted to die. Mm. <laughs> anyway, it was a really hard time for us. And the the stress of every everybody's grief, not really being able to help my kids. My son got really sick about the time of my sister's funeral. And he was, he was sick for about three months. And sometime soon after that, 
my car burned up, caught on fire and burned up. When you said that, was it during the funeral, you were gone a week and you missed? I was gone a week and a half and the OT program moved so quickly that in a week and a half, I missed seven exams and four papers. That still sticks in my mind all these years mm-hmm. because because I counted it up. and it was, and But they were so, so good to me. They told me, you know, the director of the program said, you tell me what it is we need to do for you and we will do it. She said, if we need to hold a place for you, if you need to drop out this semester, I promise we will hold a place for you. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I borrowed money to go this semester. I can't just let it fall by the wayside and borrow more money. And so she said, well, if you need to finish later, if you need to take all summer, they were they were trying to do everything for me. The first exam I took when I got back, I think I got a D. She called me in her office. She said, did did I push you too quickly to mm-hmm. make up that exam? I said, no, I pushed me. I pushed me. And so it, it was just a day-by-day thing. But lots was happening. So, I mean, those are just one of those things can make somebody feel like they're losing it. And you yes. had a chronically ill child. Yes. Another, uh, probably a teenager-ish or a preteen 15, at that point. 15. Okay. And then lost a pivotal, really important person in your in your world and financially taking care of things by, by yourself. And there's a, there's a weight that comes with that, with trying to be the parent, both parents with grieving kids. And I mean, there's any one of those things could have made yes. someone just feel like they were losing their mind. And at that point, my ex-husband was still working against me. Okay. Instead of trying to be there for the kids, he was he was working against me and and not being there for them. In fact, being abusive to them in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very lonely. Yes. And very hard. So, I mean, you kind of reached a point of like, I'm losing it here. I reached a point where two two occasions during that season of life that I I just started sobbing from deep deep within and couldn't stop just couldn't stop what does your faith look like in that season I wasn't going to church I wasn't trying to serve God I I think God was holding on to me but I wasn't looking to him for direction okay and anyway, we, we got through that time, and I, I did graduate from OT school, and it got better. For myself, what helped me was that when I realized that she was an adult and she was responsible to get her own life healed, and there, she knew I loved her, that was all I could do was love her as my sister. And so I was able to let go of her. Someone said to me during that time, you need to let go of your sister. And I thought that's the most cruel thing anybody's ever said to me. But it was truth. It was truth. I did need to release her. Of the responsibility of her. Yes. Stop carrying the burden. Yeah. Yeah. That that it was my fault somehow. Yeah. Which I think is kind of a typical reaction when, when people lose someone to suicide. Sure. For sure. And again, you guys had a closeness and a, mm-hmm. a a type of relationship. We can do, we can do coulda, woulda, shoulda in really mm-hmm. so many kinds of death and so right. many kinds of, of things. And I would have, I said, even when, when, when Scott died right away, I said, I don't have any regrets. We did all the things. We said all the things. And then I, w- I want to say like 90 days later or so, the enemy still started kind of tapping on my shoulder too. Mm-hmm. Hey, you could have, what about this? You did this. What if this contributed to the, and you're like, oh, I thought I didn't have any of that. So yes, suicide definitely is, is more of a, was this my fault? You know, what, how did I not know? How did I not see? But really it's just the enemy's deceit in a lot of grief because he did it to me too. And it wasn't suicide. So he's just mean and wants us to carry shame and condemnation that isn't ours. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are things that I have to be responsible for what I say and how I care about and love people and what what is mine that he's given me and how do I steward that? What what Mm -hmm. is my responsibility? But man, there's a lot of things that are not in my realm of responsibility to carry. 
Right. I, I've, that's why we have to know God's truth. For sure. When we know his truth, then when the enemy comes accusing us yeah. you know of things, then we, we know, yeah. you know, is it something, if it's the enemy's accusals, then we know how to stop that. Yeah. My pastor once said this, and it helped me so much. He said, the difference between conviction and condemnation, condemnation leads you to run away from the cross and isolate yourself, mm. and conviction leads you to the foot of the cross. That's good. Yeah. We actually just talked about that recently with somebody else about the difference between, you know, guilt and shame and conviction, because there is a place for, mm. for, for that. And I mean, that's what right. we're, we're talking about that right now. There is a place. Otherwise I can just be like, well, sorry, that's just my personality. Right. No, if I said something awful or if I am not loving someone the, the way that God's asked me to, if this is my thing to steward and I am not doing well, there's conviction. I mean, there's times mm-hmm. that the Lord's been rough with me sometimes, oh, me too. you know, me I'm, too. I'm the direct communicator and sometimes the Lord talks right back the same way. <laughs> Lauren, shut up. That is not acceptable, you know? Mm-hmm. So that conviction is part of a relationship with a father and mm-hmm. part of me becoming more like him. Holiness Absolutely. is going to come Absolutely. with conviction. And and that's painful. It's it chiseling is. away. It is. It doesn't feel good. No. But it's not the same as condemnation and carrying around shame and things that are not your fault, especially mm-hmm. as a history I don't know if we've ever said this on here, but I, a pastor a while back said, I think I know who it is. So if someone wants to ask me later, we'll, we can cross that bridge. But he said that the lie that we believe first is the lie we believe the longest. And that has been a really interesting, I've used that so many times in conversations with people. Mm-hmm. For you, it's p- potentially that you believe things were your fault, mm-hmm. that you were bad. Right. From a little girl, Right. Right. And so then later to then have to walk that out as a 30-something with your sister, I wonder how true that really is. Because I think it's true for me. The lie that we believe first is the lie we believe the longest. Well, I think it it could inflict the deepest wound. Well, and I know the enemy isn't all-knowing and can't be everywhere. Mm-hmm. He's not, does not hold the power of God. But he can know enough uh, as much as God lets him, you know, I mean, use Job. He knew, he knew how to get to get to him. And if he knew how to get to me as a kid, it really, over time, as you watch, as I age, the things that trip me up are often very similar to the same lie that I believed right. when I was young, just a little bit different. He's, he's a deceiver. Uh-huh. He, he's a liar. And that's really all he's really good at. And he's really not that smart. So he really is going to have to use the same things over and over and over. I mean, the same tricks go back to the garden, right? Right. Like same lies. <laughs> yes. God didn't really say that. And it makes you not trust him. Mm-hmm. God, God's not trustworthy, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, right. go back to God wasn't taking care of you as a kid. Where was he? This is, you know, this is your fault. And you are this, this bad kid. And now you're a bad wife and now you're a bad mom. And I just, I don't know. That's just like a human that said that. But I think there's some truth to, if we can go back to what's that way that the enemy lies to us. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes he packages it differently, but over, over years, he's still saying the same lie. Well, I can, I can look back to the first time I was sexually molested by my grandfather and it was on the back porch of their house, and, and there was a screen door, and my grandmother was in the kitchen. And I I was so young, I didn't even know that he had done anything to me. But when I walked in, that's when everything changed. When I walked into the kitchen, my grandmother said, don't ever let him do that to you again. And suddenly, I was a bad little girl. Mm-hmm. I was a dirty little girl. I'd done something wrong. I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. Grandma was mad at me. I wasn't acceptable. All of these things took root. And so then being sexually molested more times, it just heaps the shame on again. There was one time my grandfather had had a stroke. He was completely paralyzed on one side, and they were staying with us, and he molested me. And just as he did it, my grandmother walked out of the bathroom and saw it. And do you know what I realized as an adult later in a healing course I went through? She had said, don't ever let him do that to you again. And okay, well, there was the shame. Mm-hmm. I, I let him do it again. Mm-hmm. 
Only it wasn't my shame. Mm-hmm. I didn't let him do anything. Right. It was all him. You're a victim. Right. I, I, they're an adult using power over you. But there is such a creative manipulation there mm-hmm. to blame. And and that's, that is the most powerful thing that I try to help people to see is that You know, when you're a little child and things like that happen to you and people put shame on you and no one comes alongside you and helps you to process that pain or help you process, well, honey, that wasn't your fault. That's not your shame. Then you just internalize it. As a child, you internalize it. Well, it becomes your identity. Yes. Becomes your, who you are without the power of a, of a powerful story right. it just becomes your identity because the devil has stolen yep yep the identity the true identity Absolutely. yep and so then as we grow up and we learn the truth about who god is and who he says we are who we really are yeah and that his promises for us are true it's a process of absorbing that and taking that in yeah. and exchanging that truth all those truths for all the lies that we've believed Okay, so that's a good segue. Why on earth would you sit here and be willing to talk to this girl you don't really know about some really hard things? What what makes you willing to do that? In two in the year 2000, I went to a Women of Faith conference and Sheila Walsh was speaking and she was telling a story about her son being sick and the Holy Spirit spoke to me so clearly you have a story. And I put it on the shelf because yes, I did have a story. I did not like to speak in front of people. I was, I preferred to be in the background. I didn't, I didn't like to be, do speeches in high school. I didn't want to be in front of people, but God had a different plan for me. It's my passion. It is my passion to help people walk through their pain of the past and to see themselves from God's perspective and to see them grasp it that, oh my gosh, it wasn't my fault. I'm not bad. I have a chance at life. I have a purpose. I have a calling. I have a destiny. And when did that happen for you? When did that start to happen? Obviously all along God was, God was keeping you, but when did you start to grab a hold of that? You know, I think even before I grew a lot as a Christian, I would I would talk to different people and they would say, you have a lot of wisdom. You're very wise. And I, I began to realize that, that God had given me that and that he had given me a voice to help people because I had been through so many different things that I, I could empathize with people in a lot of different situations. Yeah. For sure. So, and and there was one morning I was praying. I was crying out to God about something and something that was going on in my life. And the Holy Spirit said, it's a gift. I've given you many gifts. And I realized he was talking about the trauma and about turning those wounds into weapons to be used for him. That's a really powerful perspective. But the Holy Spirit even gave me that phrase. Even told you that. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yes. But it's the truth because God doesn't want our pain wasted. No, we talk about that a lot here. Yeah. Yeah. So we go through things, but if, if we surrender it to him, then he, he can use it powerfully to help set other people free. I, I have, I have a machete. I have a machete. Okay. I was listening to a teaching by a woman named Anna Warner. She's she's a seer. She sees into the spiritual realm and she has heavenly encounters. And this was all kind of foreign to me. And she said that she she will be in a hallway and she'll ask God, can I go in there if there's a room with a door closed? And he said, so there was a room. He said, yes. So she went in and she said it was room that had armor all different kinds of armor and she said god can i choose one yes so she said there was one that had teeny tiny little pearls sewn together and the all of these teeny tiny little pearls made up this beautiful armor and she said god i want that one and i'm saying well god i want an armor made of tiny little pearls 
And here is what I heard. You are jungle woman. Your weapon is machete. Okay, so that sounds crazy, I know. But <laughs> you're so cute too. You're you don't look like a jungle woman. <laughs> but, but I journal. I you know, I pray and I listen and I journal. And one morning the Lord had given me a vision that I was going through a jungle and I had forgotten all about this. I found this. I didn't even remember writing it. I was going through a jungle and there was a group of people behind me and they were weak. They were emaciated, they were starving, and they were following me, and I had a machete, and I'm, I'm cutting down brush and weeds, and I'm leading them out, and I know that I'm leading them to this clearing, and when I get them to the clearing, there will be help there, and they'll get well, and they'll, they'll get healed, and they'll get strong, and then they will go out and bring others in, mm-hmm. and so... I saw that, I read that, and I I just, I thought, oh my gosh, I didn't even remember this, but it confirmed what the Lord said about you are a jungle woman, mm. your weapon is machete. So I told my brother that, and he bought me a machete, so I have a machete. That's very cool. So, but you do that. You lead people out of the jungle mm-hmm. now. I do In healing. a really different way. Yes, I do healing and deliverance ministry with people. And it's emotional, mental types of healing uh, where you're, you know, helping people be able to go back and identify the hurt, identify the pain, the lies, the lies. That's a big piece. Yes. And, and be able to move forward. And so in a crazy way, you are a jungle woman. Yes. Clear in the way. Yes. You know, and that's kind of John the Baptist like too. I kind of picture, you know, he he was making a way too. He was leading people back to Jesus, Mm -hmm. but he was, you know, kind of odd. And yeah. ate some weird things, and I picture him being really strange and maybe a little bit not relatable. And you're and you're certainly not relatable, not not relatable. Like people, you're easy to talk to, so you're not quite as weird as John the Baptist. But that's a lot of us have a, a job to make a way. Mm-hmm. And and in your case, you're getting to use some really really hard things that we, you could easily be like, God, you didn't have to do it that way. Right. You didn't have to make me go through that. And you could pout and you could be bitter. And choose not to then be the person that paves the way for other people to get to get freedom. But it has been a long process. Yeah. I didn't get there overnight. It's been a long process for me. But that humility is important, too. And that is endearing and helps you be relatable. So acting like we have it all together and that it was easy. Mm. One is bogus, but it also isn't. A lot of people have a really hard time. A lot of people struggle for a long time, do bitterness for a long time, or angry for a long time, relapse a couple different times before they can, you know, whatever it is. And unforgiveness, unforgiveness is a huge, huge piece of it. Mm -hmm. Huge piece. Of others and themselves? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes forgiving self is the hardest part. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. So many good things. Yes. So many good things. Okay, well... What would you, is there anything you, you want to say that you, um, you didn't get to say or that you don't want to leave out or, I don't know, I feel like so many, um, we could. I really would just like to say that without God, I wouldn't have made it. I was a completely miserable human being and I didn't know how to come out of it. I didn't know how to come out of it. And I used to cry out to the Lord and say, Jesus, you say in your word that if you're my savior, I have freedom and abundant life. So why don't I have it? And eventually I learned it's that that's the beginning. Salvation is the beginning. But working out our salvation is engaging in God's process of healing, restoration, and transformation. And it's so worth it. It's so worth going back through the painful situations to get his perspective and to move on. And honestly, God has healed me so much. And I'm not saying I'm completely healed. You know, he he dealt with me on self-reliance just last summer, strongly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and But I wouldn't want to go back. There's nothing to go back to. So healed is relative too. 
like, like heal doesn't mean that you don't talk about those hard things. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that they don't matter. They actually matter hugely. That's a huge part of your ministry. Right. So, so healing, be, being healed, clearly we're healed in a way that when God looks at me, he sees his son and he doesn't see my brokenness and my right. sin. So that's, right. that's healed like once and for all. I mean, healed and salvation in some translations, those are actually the same word that because I am saved through Christ, I am healed. Mm -hmm. Okay. But in the world and as a human in my flesh, there's a whole lot of brokenness. And so I think, I think healed sometimes could be, can be a relative because if healed means that no longer hurts me, I no longer feel anything when I talk about that, or I'm not going to talk about that anymore. Then, then we're all in trouble. But instead, I think healing, or at least the process of healing, is that you're using it, that your perspective is different, that you see it as God giving you weapons to yes. wage against, you know, it's, it says that our yes. weapons are not like the world's. So these, you're able to use your story and and your your past and your hurt as weapons to help other people move forward. I just think that that is healed. Now, again, are we whole? Am I perfectly holy and done, complete? Well, no, I'm still here. And until he takes me, no, I'm not. Right. But healed, I, I think maybe we have to change our perspective on what God's doing and that transformation is going to keep on happening because I'm not I'm not complete. But there's still some really, really good things there. Right. And him teaching you last summer or disciplining us or continuing to change and mold and shape us is actually him really loving me. Yes, continuing to walk with me and not giving up on me. And, you know, he knew my self-reliance started out as just surviving, but still he said, it's, it's rebellion. It's rebellion. And once I saw it as rebellion, that was hurtful to me that I had, that I had hurt the Lord in that way by, by being in rebellion. Yeah. But he also knows you and, and knew how to just continue walking and holding your hand and Again, and it's he's so gentle. Kind. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. a kindness there. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Seriously. Thank you. I, I'm excited to see what God's going to do with this one. Thank you so much for listening. If you have or know someone with an inspiring story, you can apply to be a guest at OrdinaryGrit.com. Be sure to connect with me on Instagram at OrdinaryGritPodcast to get to know me and my guests.